I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to the 13th episode of IntroVets podcast. Hello. Today, we have another case for you. JJ, tell us about Leo the cat. Leo is an eight-year-old male castrated domestic short hair kitty. Leo is vomiting more often for the past three weeks. He normally vomits one to two times a week, but now it's at least once a day. Otherwise, though, he's eating well at home. Let's go ahead to the physical exam. <laughs> I know, you want to unpack the vomiting. Uh, all right, uh, physical exam. So uh, he had an adequate body condition score, which was six out of nine, but he has lost a pound and a half in the last year since the last visit. He has moderate dental calculus. No other abnormalities noted on physical exam. Uh, he eats treats excitedly <laughs> in the exam room. <laughs> He's bright alert and overall appears stable. So for me, the thing that is very exciting about this case is that it's a chronically vomiting cat who has now elevated his level of chronic vomiting. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I'm going to say to this owner is it is not normal for cats to chronically vomit. Yet it seems to be so common. I know, but I'm just going to repeat that one more time. For the people in the back? Yes. <laughs> it is not normal for cats to chronically vomit. Period. So there's a problem. Uh, <laughs> I think we, we, we've got to do better about getting rid of this idea that people have that it's normal for cats to vomit. No, it is not. If you were vomiting... One to two times a week for years, would you be like, yeah, everything's fine? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. You would be like, take me to the gastroenterologist right away. <laughs> the same is true of cats. They should mm -hmm. not be vomiting one to two times a week long term, even if they seem fine otherwise. Here we go. Okay, so chronic intermittent vomiting in a patient who is stable. Let's look at some differential diagnoses. And mm -hmm. I think we might run into some that are familiar sounding to long-term listeners of the podcast. Can I get a hyperthyroidism? Yep. Hyperthyroidism should be on the list. Mm -hmm. uh, inflammatory bowel disease, my personal top choice. <laughs> Neoplasia or cancer. Yep. Yep. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Really any type of malabsorption or maldigestion disorder, we'll kind of put that on there as a group of things. Uh, possibly intestinal parasites. Mm hmm Yep, intestinal parasites. Very naughty and like to sneak under the radar, especially in our cat patients for some reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, intestinal foreign body, we're going to say maybe, you know, it's a really chronically vomiting cat. I don't think that's probably what's going on, but, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that the cat has got some issue creating chronic vomiting and then also happened to eat a string or something you know like mm -hmm. it did get worse so yeah. i think we should keep it on our list and also probably pancreatitis but if that's the case then should look for an underlying condition absolutely generally for differentials here anything that can cause vomiting and weight loss in cats those are non-specific signs so we could probably even add more things to this list. It's just a really long list. So mm -hmm. I think that that's a good starting point. So where do we start as far as running tests? 
What I like to do first is to say, well, what things on our list are really easy to rule out and screen for, and then start there. So I'm going to want to run a minimum database, which, as we've discussed before, includes a complete blood count or CBC, a chemistry profile, and a urinalysis. I'm going to want to perform a total thyroxine level or total T4 to screen for hyperthyroidism. I think we should order a fecal parasite test to rule out intestinal parasitism as a cause of chronic vomiting. And I would take some radiographs, definitely of the abdomen. But as a side note, I'll say that if I have an aged cat that has weight loss and I'm already taking x-rays of it, I kind of go ahead and ask for three views of the chest and two views of the abdomen. Because, like, especially with digital x-ray now, it's it's not very expensive to just do it. And it's quick, and you already have the cat out. You're already in x-ray. Everybody's already suited up in their lead aprons and stuff. Like, <laughs> just radiograph the whole cat, you know? So I would get three views of the chest, two views of the abdomen, just in cases. Because every once in a while, they'll try to you know, throw you off with some sort of a crazy uh, lung pathology or like mm-hmm. a tumor, you know, or like, a, oh, I was vomiting, but really I'm in heart failure. Psych, you know, <laughs> cats like to be naughty like that. <laughs> this was in my pouch. <laughs> yes, yes. I would also consider running a feline pancreatic lipase test. SNAP FPL by IDEX is one uh, in-clinic version. You can also send out tests to outside labs. You know, it's a a screening test for pancreatitis, but there can be false positives or false negatives. And I'm going to add that to the list, but with the stipulation of if it's positive, that doesn't mean, oh, check it off the list. It's got pancreatitis. We're done. It means, (laughs) hmm, we need to look further. Mm -hmm. So, JJ. Yes. What sorts of tests were performed for Leo and what were the results? Well, uh, the good news was the owners were on board with doing the diagnostic testing. So when there. Yeah. The full workup recommended was completed and okay. all completely within normal limits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're we just going to ride off into the sunset, tell everybody he's fine. We're just going to be like, oh, it's probably pancreatitis. Just give him a couple of days on fluids, send him home. Yeah, Mm-mm. that's what we'll do. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're not going to let him fool us, JJ. Yeah. No. Okay, we're not done. So what do we do next? Well, remember the weight loss. Cats can occasionally vomit and it not be some sort of dire situation. But Mm -hmm. this is not that case. This cat's lost a pound and a half. It's an aged cat with chronic vomiting that's recently gotten worse. This is not a case where we can hang up our hat on a normal CBC chemistry and ride off into the sunset. Like, no, (laughs) do not do that. I know it's tempting. You want to say, meh, he seems stable. He seems all right. But we got to remember, be aggressive. <laughs> like the football cheer. Oh, we, are we going to get cheerful in here? Mm-hmm. That's be not the right word. Aggressive. Be, be aggressive. I don't know. What are, what are cheerleaders? Peppy. There we go. Peppy. Wait, what are cheerleaders like again? Peppy. I'm always peppy. Um, going to go ahead and say bullshit. Rude. Okay, so the differentials that we have either ruled out completely or we can move way down on the list based on our initial results include hyperthyroidism, intestinal parasitism, and GFR and object. Still on the list are inflammatory bowel disease. Really, that's the top differential in a cat Mm -hmm. with this history. 
Neoplasia, though, inflammatory bowel disease exists on a continuum with uh, GI lymphoma. So we can progress from inflammation to precancerous changes to cancer over time. So we kind of uh, maybe even group those together. Um, Mm -hmm. Malabsorption, maldigestion disorders, still on the list. And then pancreatitis, we can't rule it out, even though the uh, FPL test was normal. We can't rule it out. So. With the information we have, it's still on the list so far, but maybe further down, kind of at the bottom of the list right now. Mm-hmm. So we need to get him on some supportive care for his vomiting. I would choose some sort of antiemetic therapy like maybe Serenia while we're kind of waiting so that he has a little bit of relief. And then we're going to discuss some further testing with the owner. Sometimes owners are a little frustrated by that, you know, when, when they're like, well, hey, we just did a really big workup everything's normal, why are you recommending further tests? I think empathizing with with that frustration is important, but we want to stay firm in our recommendations. I think we need to avoid the temptation of limiting our recommendations so that we don't get yelled at by the owners. Mm. (laughs) Well, you could also flip it to a positive and say, well, look, by doing the tests we've already done, we've eliminated mm-hmm. hyperthyroidism and intestinal parasite disease. And so, well, we haven't completely eliminated these other things. So we just need to dive a little deeper because yeah. we want to resolve these symptoms. You don't want to keep coming back for this repeatedly, which is probably what's going to happen. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way to look at it, JJ. Yeah. Of saying, hey, look, here's the good news. We've ruled out these things. Here's what's still on our list. I like that Mm -hmm. approach a lot. Hang in there. Don't let fear of owner anger limit what you recommend. So what about the timing? How urgent is it to do further testing? I think it depends 100% on how sick the kitty cat is. So Leo is stable. He's eating and drinking. You know, if we give him some Serenia and he's like seeming much better, then we can kind of delay further tests while the owners think about it, I think that's reasonable. But if we decide to delay further testing, the patient needs to be monitored really, really carefully, including for further weight loss. Now, sometimes you are worried about these sorts of differentials in a cat that's very ill. That type of case, we we don't have time to wait on that. If the cat is dropping weight super rapidly, is no longer eating, is depressed, is is physically sick, That cat, we got to put the gas on the floor about that one. So I think just overall making sure that the owner understands that we're not done yet. Don't let them ride off into the sunset with some Serenia and not come back for six months. We got to monitor carefully, but we we do have a little bit of leeway if the owner needs time to make a decision or for financial planning, because some of the things we're going to be talking about are expensive. Yeah. Yeah, the workup for diseases left on the differential list can be frustrating for the owner and for the doctor as well as expensive. Before we talk about further testing, can we discuss our top differential and what inflammatory bowel disease is? Inflammatory bowel disease, often abbreviated IBD, it's a term that we use to describe a group of several chronic GI disorders. These disorders cause mucosal inflammation and chronic GI signs. IBD can involve any and all areas of the GI tract, and many forms exist, but the lymphoplasmacytic form is the most common in dogs and cats. Mm. So, Jane, Jane, mm. what causes inflammatory bowel disease? 
Well, we don't know exactly, but there's some theories. Um, could be a combination of factors that result in intestinal inflammation. Uh, the factors may be environmental, dietary, immunoregulatory, or microbial. One possibility is a defect in the intestinal mucosal barrier. This leads to increased gut permeability, which causes hypersensitivity to antigens that would otherwise be tolerated in healthy patients. Hmm. Uh, another possibility is that IBD is related to defects in gut-associated lymphatic tissue. Now, we're not 100% sure what the underlying cause is, but we do know what sorts of changes that the inflammation creates in the GI tract. The inflammation creates changes to the structure of the intestine. Um, those changes can be villus atrophy, fusion, fibrosis, and oh shit, lymphangiectasia. Perfect. The inflammation leads to malabsorption. Blood, fluid, and protein are lost into the intestinal lumen. Sometimes protein loss can be severe. IBD may be complicated by small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. The inflammation also reduces the ability of the smooth muscle in the GI tract to move normally. Vomiting can be caused by a couple different things. Inflammatory infiltrates in the stomach and small intestine, creating stimulation of visceral afferent receptors, delayed gastric emptying, and altered motility. And then we have some clinical signs, which is going to be uh, diarrhea, vomiting, appetite changes, poor body condition, flatulence, <laughs> five, uh, dehydration, and abdominal pain. Yeah. And those clinical signs, they don't have to all be present. Cats mm -hmm. like to get kind of just one or two or maybe <laughs> 0.5 clinical signs, you know. <laughs> they collect diseases, but they don't collect clinical signs. Yeah, they try to hide their shit from us. Bitches. <laughs> yeah, I've seen kitty cats with inflammatory bowel disease that I've diagnosed just based on weight loss. They've not had vomiting. They've been eating well. They've not had diarrhea. Like, no GI signs that the owner could tell. The only symptom was, <laughs> was weight loss. So it can be any single symptom as well. Okay, so now that we know what IBD is, how do we go about diagnosing it? Well, that's sometimes tricky. So there isn't a consensus on what it takes to achieve a diagnosis, but the following list has been proposed. This would be not in either or situation, but all of these things coexisting together. The first would be chronic, meaning more than three weeks of persistent or recurring GI signs, combined with histopathologic evidence of mucosal inflammation, like we would need to get biopsies of the GI tract for that, combined with an inability to document other causes of GI inflammation, and also ruling out other causes of clinical signs that are similar, things like exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or more common in dogs, but also possible in cats, Addison's disease. In addition to inadequate response to dietary, antibiotic, and anthelmintic therapy, that means deworming. And finally, a positive clinical response to anti-inflammatory or immunosuppressive agents. So that's, that's the proposed list of how to, to definitively diagnose this. <laughs> so we got a lot of things. We basically got to make sure histopath agrees that it's just inflammation and not cancer. We've got to rule out other disease processes that might be creating our symptoms. And we've got to rule out other processes that might be creating the inflammation. And then finally, we need to like 
respond to therapy like we expect. So it's kind of a lot. I was just thinking that, you know, in a lot of cases, you could present clients with that list. And I think the thing they most often balk at would be the biopsies. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. If you were to do some of these other, you know, things on the list, um, particularly if they respond to anti-inflammatory or immunosuppressive agents, would you be comfortable with being like, it's more than likely this without those biopsies? JJ, that is a fantastic question. And we're going to get to it a little bit later. I want you to push pause on that. (laughs) We're going to keep going through our testing, but let's come back to that because that is a great question. Great question. So unfortunately, the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease is often not straightforward. Uh, We have to use a combination of several tests to reach a diagnosis most of the time. So Mm -hmm. what I'm going to do is sort of go through some of the tests that we would consider what they are, some of the pros and cons of them. And then we're going to come back around to some of the things you just brought up about like owner hesitancy for further testing, especially biopsies and things like that. So the first test that we're going to talk about is a malabsorption, maldigestion profile. This is typically going to include a cobalamin level, that's vitamin B12, a folate level, and a TLI or trypsin-like immunoreactivity. That's a test for exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, a condition where the pancreas doesn't produce important substances and it impacts the ability to digest food. So this type of panel requires just a blood draw, but it needs to be 12-hour fasting blood draw, and it needs to be performed before any sort of vitamin B supplementation has occurred, because obviously if we give vitamins, then it can affect the results. You would want to check with the lab for withdrawal times if the pet happens to already be on some sort of supplementation when you think about testing. Now, if cobalamin is in the bottom half of the reference interval when we do this test, we want to supplement vitamin B12 in that kitty. Even if it's technically inside the normal range, anywhere in the bottom half is really considered deficient if we're having symptoms like this. Changes in cobalamin and folate that we see on the test might help localize intestinal disease to either the proximal or distal segments of the small intestine, depending on what those results say. But this type of test can be 100% normal and the patients still have inflammatory bowel disease. (laughs) So the next type of test that we use to try to help us diagnose inflammatory bowel disease is abdominal ultrasound. Um, So ultrasound is more useful than x-ray when we're trying to evaluate the intestinal wall thickness. The lesions that we're looking for that JJ described a little bit in the pathophysiology section can be diffuse, like spread out in an area, or they can be multifocal, meaning a little spot here, a little spot here, a little spot here. The abnormalities that we're looking for include thickening of the intestinal walls, but the intestinal wall layering will be preserved if we're talking about inflammatory bowel disease. If we're seeing disruption of the intestinal layering, then we have to be a little bit more nervous about a cancerous changes there. Mm-hmm. Increased wall thickness can also be seen with neoplasia, but sometimes if we are looking at the GI tract on ultrasound, it might look normal even if the pet has inflammatory bowel disease. Sometimes we'll see enlarged lymph nodes. Now, enlarged lymph nodes don't mean that the cat has cancer right off. We can see enlarged lymph nodes with just inflammatory disease. And then a bonus of ultrasound is while we're in there, we're evaluating the pancreas for changes. 
a normal pancreatic appearance on ultrasound doesn't completely rule out pancreatitis, but it does make it less likely. And then the last and biggest thing that we're going to talk about as far as further tests go. Dun, dun, dun. Intestinal biopsies. <laughs> Full thickness biopsies of the intestinal tract are the gold standard for diagnosis. Now, when we're talking about full thickness biopsies, that means major surgery. It means general anesthesia, an exploratory laparotomy, biopsying multiple segments of the GI tract. So we would want to get stomach, all portions of the small intestine, any big lymph nodes that we see, we need to biopsy those guys as well. Potential risks of this type of procedure include dehiscence of the biopsy sites. That means that the stitches on the inside open up. We could have leaking of intestinal fluid into the abdominal cavity, creating bad inflammation and infection, Eek. also known as peritonitis. Or we might even have anesthetic complications. And this is an expensive route to go. Now, there is another way to biopsy the GI tract, and that's to collect biopsies with the endoscope. But this does not provide a full thickness specimen. We're also limited on the areas that we can reach with the endoscope. So in the cat, we're talking about stomach and the proximal small intestine. So the part of the small intestine that's closest to the stomach. We're not going to be able to get distal duodenum. We're not going to be able to get jejunum or ileum with an endoscope. We're also just taking kind of little pinch biopsies. So the sample size is limited. And again, it doesn't get that full thickness. So there's a difference between endoscopic biopsies and full thickness biopsies as far as their reliability in detecting cancer. Certainly, you could have endoscopic biopsies that show inflammation in the stomach and proximal small intestine, but have a cancerous lesion somewhere else that we can't reach. So it, it's not a perfect thing. It's less invasive, though, than major surgery, still requires general anesthesia, and in, might be less expensive, too. Probably not significantly less expensive, but... Yeah, I think it depends on the region of the country yeah. and, like, how far the owner has to travel for it and things like that, yeah, you know? especially places it might be, but if you happen to work at a clinic that has an endoscope, mm -hmm. um, I think for private practices, I don't, I don't know that it would be... I mean, just in my experience at working at a clinic that had one, mm -hmm. it, it was pretty close About to doing... the same. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you just want to check on that. Since inflammatory bowel disease exists on a continuum with intestinal lymphoma, the type of cancer, differentiating between these two is important because it impacts our prognosis and it also impacts what we're going to do for treatment. So we always have to take that into account. Does the owner want biopsies? If so, what type are we going to go with? And does the owner fully understand the pros and cons of each approach? It, it becomes really tricky to talk about. Mm-hmm. And then there's one more type of testing option that we're going to talk about, and it could be argued that it should really be in the therapy section, but sometimes we are actually using it as a type of test. So I bumped it up into this section, and that's a limited ingredient dietary trial. So this is a test in which we feed a prescription quality limited ingredient diet for a number of weeks to the kitty cat, along with literally zero other things, uh, to see if it improves the clinical signs. And in, say, cats with really mild disease or kitty cats that are doing really well, maybe they're young, kitty cats that were not like, holy crap, this is probably cancer right off the bat, 
and the owners don't want to be super aggressive. This is one thing that you can start with because you're literally just feeding cat food. There are zero risks associated with this. <laughs> and since you already would be buying pet food anyway, it's actually not that expensive to conduct this test. Mm-hmm. You just have to make sure that the owner is on board. So they, you can't just start the food and then have them also be like, oh, well... I also feed a can of Friskies in the morning and then I give 17 temptations. You know, they have to truly just eat this food, but it is completely risk free. So mm-hmm. I like any type of test that's completely <laughs> risk free. The number of weeks that you would need to feed the limited ingredient uh, diet to, to know whether we're making a difference, it, it varies and it depends on who you talk to. I usually do it for like eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was researching for this episode, I was seeing references that said as little as two weeks and then everywhere in between. So, wow, two weeks. Yeah. Uh, some people were saying, yeah, at the two week point, you should be seeing some difference. <laughs> so, I think that the number of weeks you wait might also just depend on how sick the cat is. Again, if you are dealing with a super sick elderly cat, we don't have eight weeks to mess around sometimes. Yeah. But if you've got a young cat who's otherwise doing okay and you know, it's hanging in there body condition wise and isn't super sick. Maybe you do have eight weeks to kind of decide. But this is a good thing to start kind of a starter test slash possible therapy if the owner really needs extra time to think about what they want to do. So speaking of that, I mean, would we recommend all of these tests right away? Well, in a perfect world, I'm going to say, yeah, we would, you know, in a perfect world, be able to move forward with all of these additional tests, get our diagnosis, then move on to therapy. Uh, But in my experience, that's not typical. Because of the invasiveness, risks, and expense, many owners don't want to go with full thickness biopsies initially. And sometimes they're like, we don't ever want to do that at all for any reason. Yeah, I can think of, I can count on one hand the number of times that I've been in surgery usually if there's biopsies it's because they've had to go into surgery for something else mm-hmm. they're like well while we're in here let's go ahead since we're having some of these issues and a lot of times i think it's also with they're trying to rule out is it a foreign body situation but rarely have i assisted in surgeries where we're doing simply just biopsies so you're saying that you've mostly seen intestinal biopsies taken if they get a negative exploratory for a foreign object mm-hmm but rarely to to truly go after an IBD or neoplasia diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that's interesting. I have worked in practices where I've seen it happen either way. I, I've worked in some practices where there were very proactive recommendations for cats with chronic GI signs. And so I would say we did a fair number of biopsies in kitty cats where we went in with biopsy as the goal of the procedure. So I think it just varies. Mm-hmm. It probably varies too, like how aggressive the doctor is. Well, yeah, if you don't recommend it, then <laughs> then the client can't accept it, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> well, that, and you know, is the veterinarian afraid of the client reaction? So they're oh, like, maybe. well, I can fall back on some of these other things. So I'm not even going to mention it because they don't even want to do surgery. They don't want to put their hand under for dentistry, much less, you know, yeah. invasive surgery. Yeah, and I think part of that is just having that relationship with the owner and kind of knowing them. What I'll say is I never make the decision for an owner. What I might do if we're if we've had exhaustive previous conversations and I already know what they're going to say, I'm going to say 
I think I know what your answer is going to be, but to be in good conscience, I need to mention to you these options. If this isn't okay, that's okay. But I need to tell you about them anyway. Are you ready to hear them? And then I go forward. And then they kind of know, like, you know, this is not going to be a combative situation. I think a lot of owners get really combative when additional testing is recommended because maybe they're afraid that the veterinarian is going to be mad at them or Mm -hmm. they feel guilt about not accepting them. And that kind of morphs into like rage and attacking the veterinary staff. Yeah. Or Um, they might even feel judged. They may feel like that we think less of them because they don't want to do it, which I mean, I I don't feel that way. I'm just like, you know, Mm -hmm. if I understand, I mean, you got to be practical, but you also, you know, do what you feel like is best for your pet and, you know, it is what it is. Yes. And ultimately, it, this is not the veterinarian's decision or the staff's decision. Mm-hmm. This is the owner's decision. Now, legally, we have to provide them with all of the information that's reasonable to provide to allow them to make the best decision for themselves. But it's their decision. It's their decision. And sometimes people just react poorly to things when they're stressed out about something that you've told them. That doesn't mean that you were wrong to make the recommendations or that you did a bad job. But sometimes people just react crappily to things. Mm-hmm. So I know it's really stressful. I always get super upset whenever I have a negative owner interaction where they are mad at me for recommending something that, you know, is quote too much or too aggressive or something like that. But then And then it kind of damages my confidence for a little while where Mm -hmm. it would be tempting then to be overly conservative with my subsequent cases. But I just have to fight it and remind myself like, hey, if it's an appropriate recommendation, it's an appropriate recommendation. And the owner's response to your recommendation shouldn't dictate what those are. Mm hmm. So it's really hard to get there, though. Like it's Mm -hmm. a fight. It's (laughs) It's hard to get there and stay there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, because of the invasiveness, many owners don't want to go that route. Additionally, many cases might have mild symptoms. Maybe we have a cat that's doing really good, and so it might make invasive, potentially risky and expensive procedures sort of hard to justify in the owner's minds, or sometimes, depending on the case, to the veterinarian. Like, I think my youngest IBD suspect that I've ever seen has been like four years old, you know, What are the chances that that cat has got GI lymphoma? You know, like pretty low, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's not impossible, but like it's hard to justify that for a cat that young who doesn't have really bad symptoms. So all of that kind of falls into the art of veterinary medicine side and into the what are the owner's goals for the case side. But I think you have to present all of the options and let the owner pick. And then not take it personally either way, mm-hmm. even if they yell at you. <laughs> so on the flip side, sometimes owners will delay care for their pet who's really pretty sick. Then by the time it lands on our doorstep and we're thinking this cat needs intestinal biopsies, the cat's too sick mm-hmm. to put under anesthesia or to make it through that type of procedure. You know, if they come in and they've had that really bad protein loss we talked about earlier and their albumin is one and a half, like. Mm. That's not a great surgical candidate. Those Mm-mm. intestinal biopsy sites are not going to heal well. Mm-mm. So sometimes that might be a reason where you're like, well, crap, I I really think we should do this, but I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a bad situation. <laughs> Cost is a consideration. So even without the biopsies, 
additional lab work that we talked about, and the ultrasound is considered high cost by many clients. That's mm-hmm. the reality. Mm-hmm. And then finally, sometimes owners have very, very specific beliefs and desires surrounding their pet's care, and they might dictate the options that the owner chooses. And some of those, I think, are cultural. They might be socioeconomic. It might be a some sort of a family ethic surrounding treatment of pets and, and what the pet's role in the household even is. And so all of those things might dramatically impact an individual client's decision about what to do. So I think we need to be sensitive to that and, and as understanding as possible. And I think it's a sort of issue where we don't have a single right answer for how to proceed. I might recommend going straight to biopsies in some cases, or I might start more conservatively depending on how the patient is doing and what the owner's goals are. But in general, I'll just say how I approach this case. So first I say, owner, I suspect inflammatory bowel disease. It's difficult to diagnose. I want to review some very detailed information with you about the issue. And this is something that's too detailed for a simple phone conversation. And even if it's a long phone call, I don't think a phone call is the best way because it's hard for owners to follow the string of conversation when we're hitting them with a lot of unfamiliar concepts. So what I like for the owners to do is to take some time and thoroughly review some written information. So I will prepare a document based on the individual case, and I will say, owner, here are the recommendations. Here's what I'm worried about. Here are the pros and cons of each approach. On this case, based on this information, I think the best option for this patient is blank. Fill it in. Here are plan B, C, D, E, F, J, you know, however many Mm -hmm. plans we need to get through before we figure out which one we're going to go with. And then have the owner sit down and really look at that and then call me back and then we can have the phone conversation. This also, I think, kind of helps with the whole, I just spent 30 minutes on the phone talking to an owner really, really in depth about a thing. And now they're like, okay, great. Here's what I want to do. But I need you to repeat all of that to my wife. Here she is. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like we don't get unlimited phone calls, (laughs) you know, one phone call, like when you're arrested, that's it. (laughs) Sorry. Happens all the time. (laughs) So I prefer email, Uh, but you could also set up like uh, a section of your clinic website with the information for the owner to go and read there. And that might even make the owner feel like they're involved with, quote, researching a topic. Like some, you know, some owners really like to like Google things, you know, and it helps if we (laughs) kind of direct them towards a reputable source instead of some sort of weird breeder message board. Anyway, okay. So then we'll have a a follow-up meeting and make sure the owner doesn't have any questions about the information, and then we'll go from there. You know, sometimes the owner just doesn't want to move forward with major stuff, and we have to settle for a presumptive diagnosis. That's just the reality. JJ, you had one other question, and that was, what do we do if the owner doesn't want to pursue biopsies and things like that? Would we maybe even start steroids? And we're going to still get to that. But first... We need to talk about how inflammatory bowel disease is treated. How is inflammatory bowel disease treated, G? Well, I think that the term management might be more true than the term treatment. Mm -hmm. So there's no cure for inflammatory bowel disease. Usually 
We're talking about managing a case with several different types of therapy. It's kind of a trial and error process. In general, the patient needs to be maintained long-term with the smallest amount of intervention possible. And when I say the smallest amount of intervention, I don't mean the least work for the owner. I mean the least potential side effects to the patient. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Patients with mild disease, we might have complete clinical resolution with a dietary trial and supplementation with vitamin B12. Patients with more major clinical signs or that have more severe changes, they're going to need immunosuppressive medicines like steroids or even some types of uh, medicine that we think about mostly as a chemotherapy agent if they're really bad off. As far as individual treatment options, I'm just going to go through a few categories because there is no one gold standard. Boom, here is the one thing you use to treat every single case. Sort of the first group is antimicrobial therapies. So empirical, that means that we're treating without direct evidence of the problem, therapy, with fenbendazole or panicure would be considered as an option. Essentially, we're just generally deworming the pit. (laughs) Even if the fecal test is negative, a lot of people advocate for this. Mm -hmm. And then we do have a syndrome called antibiotic responsive enteropathy that is basically like, we don't know what the hell's wrong, but it responds to antibiotics like metronidazole. Like that's a documented thing and we Mm -hmm. don't know what happens. So mm, we might try metronidazole. Uh, The only downside for me on that is that metronidazole is super bitter. And so mm-hmm. I, if we were going to do that, I would want to get a compounded version that's not disgusting. Metronidazole is terrible. I had to take it before it tastes like poison. It's gross. I noticed that um, we started carrying a liquid metronidazole mm-hmm. that seems to be well tolerated. Not too bad. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Sort of the next segment would be dietary trial slash dietary therapy. So There are several different types of diets that you can consider trying for our trial. We might try a highly digestible diet, diet with a novel protein source, or a hypoallergenic diet. Deers and taters. (laughs) Deers and taters. (laughs) You can't truly diagnose any sort of dietary intolerance unless the pet responds to a special diet like, say, a novel protein diet but then redevelops the symptoms after you challenge them with the old diet. (laughs) I came across that statement when I was reading, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's technically true, but come on. Like, I'm not going to take an eight-year-old cat and make it... Like, if we finally get chronic vomiting in an eight-year-old cat under control, I'm like, don't you dare give the cat a cell food. Like, let's just keep it on this food. What the hell? Like, no, we don't need to... Don't tip that apple cart. (laughs) Yeah, like, what? Take that with a grain of salt is what I'm saying. Mm. In my super sick patients, there is not any way in hell that I would chance making them sick again (laughs) if we finally get them stable. Like, no, but that's just me. Um, Depends on how badly the owner wants like a a textbook worthy diagnosis of dietary intolerance or whether they're just like, it's fine to feed this food long term by so. Now, immunosuppressive therapy is going to be needed in those kitty cats that have either really bad disease or disease that's more mild but isn't responding to treatment. And corticosteroids are the initial drugs of choice. In the cat, the drug of choice is prednisolone. Uh, The other option that's used less often is budesonide. Sometimes people think that budesonide has fewer side effects than prednisolone, but that topic is actually debated. And then some people think budesonide doesn't work as well as prednisolone, but that topic is 
also debated. So I think it just depends on the individual specialist that you talk to. But I use prednisolone and I used it in my own cat. I've never seen anybody use budesonide. And- yeah, you don't see it very often. I think I've had to put one kitty cat on it before ever that I can think of. And now that was years and years ago. And I remember it being expensive and kind of hard to find. That's when I wondered but- if it was more expensive. Yeah, but, you know, price and availability changes so much from year to year that, mm-hmm. I mean, I can't say that for sure at this point. I just I just would have no idea. Other immunosuppressive medications like chlorambucil, which is often used as chemotherapy, actually, for mm-hmm. GI lymphoma. Uh, sometimes we use it in cats that don't have cancerous changes, but just have ultra severe IBD that doesn't respond to anything else. And over the years, I've had a single case like that that I can think of who d- did not have neoplastic changes, but who we had to maintain in chlorambucil. And she mm. did really well for years and years. Mm. Now, one thing I read about that I was super excited about, but <laughs> yes. couldn't find like a ton of information on. It's fairly new, I think. Yeah. Fecal transplant therapy has <laughs> been talked about and it's currently being investigated. I've heard a lot. I mean, the things that I've read about it, there's a lot of excitement with it. Yeah. It seems to be working. Yeah, you take the poo of normal <laughs> animals and you feed it to sick animals mm. to see if they get better. It's like super old-timey medicine. Yum. <laughs> ultra, ultra, ultra old-timey. <laughs> like beginning-of-time medicine. <laughs> Bloodletting and fecal transplant. I know, right? <laughs> anyway, yeah, fecal transplant therapy. It's an exciting field. It is. It's hard for me on the because I've researched it on the people side. I just don't know if I would ever be able to get over the idea of it, though, is my problem. I mean, is it in a capsule? How does this work? (laughs) Girl, I hope it's in a damn capsule. (laughs) What would be the alternative? (laughs) Pooh burger. (laughs) Somebody better be putting it in a capsule for me. (laughs) Pooh burger with cheese. I don't know. No, 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 no. JJ. Supposed to have burgers for dinner, damn it. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I did not know. <laughs> okay. Gross. This is a new meaning to the term garden burger. God. Okay. Yeah. And then lastly, supportive therapy. So those are going to include things like vitamin B12 supplementation, which we touched on a little bit. Cobalamin deficiency can lead to intestinal mucosal atrophy and hinder mucosal regeneration of the intestines. And some cats with inflammatory bowel disease actually won't respond to appropriate treatment until their vitamin B12 is supplemented. So this is super important. You can supplement in injectable or oral forms, but some people think that the oral forms are less effective. That makes sense to me if you're having intestinal uh, uh, absorption issues already, like Mm -hmm. maybe we should just give it parenterally, you know. You want to supplement any patient whose values are in the bottom half of the reference interval. I think I mentioned that earlier. And then if you can't perform cobalamin testing, err on the side of giving the supplementation. It probably is not going to hurt the pet. You you can't really overdose an animal on vitamin B12. So, like, just give it B12 <laughs> if the owner doesn't want to test. That's okay. Just give it the B12, though. Another type of supportive therapy would be probiotics and prebiotics. Probiotics are live microorganisms that we administer to give some type of health benefit. They're, quote, good bacteria. And then prebiotics are complex carbohydrates that increase the growth of the beneficial bacteria that we're using. So if we use prebiotics 
in addition to the probiotics, the prebiotics help the probiotic bacteria get established. And then lastly, under the supportive care category, I'm going to talk about Serenia for a minute. So Serenia is meropotent, and it is an NK1 antagonist. It's used in pets mostly for vomiting, like acute vomiting if you're ill, or even vomiting for motion sickness. But it's an, a potent inhibitor of substance P. Substance P is a pro-inflammatory cytokine, and it adds to the inflammation of the GI tract in inflammatory bowel disease patients. And so there's a lot of anecdotal support for using Serenia for inflammatory bowel disease, even in conjunction with steroid. Some pets um, will need it kind of all the time, but especially for like breakthrough vomiting or something like that, I really, really like Serenia in my IBD kitties, and my own IBD kitty takes Serenia just as needed for her symptoms. Monitoring the pet's long-term condition is going to be the main way that we look at how well therapy is working and determine what types of therapy are needed. So we don't usually like shotgun approach it and start all therapy at one time. I mean, we might for really bad cases, but most of the time we kind of start and gradually add or subtract things sort of depending on how the pet's doing. But this requires the pet to be monitored pretty frequently. This is not a set it and forget it thing. Mm -hmm. So we need frequent check-ins by phone and in person. We need the owner weighing the pet at home and keeping a log and sending it to us. And I like the owners to rate and track the clinical signs through a log. So that way we can know for sure, you know, how many times a week are we vomiting? How many times a week are we having diarrhea? What is our weight loss doing? Because sometimes if you're just talking with the owner, they don't remember. They're like, was it yesterday they vomited or last Tuesday? I can't remember. <laughs> you know, people have busy lives. So just having them track it is super helpful. Mm-hmm. So, JJ, mm -hmm. the prognosis for inflammatory bowel disease can be somewhat variable. What does it depend on? Uh, it depends on disease severity and the presence of comorbidities. Immunosuppressive treatment can be stopped after 8 to 12 weeks of remission, but some patients need it for the long term. So I'm going to qualify that by saying gradually. Mm. It can be gradually decreased and yes. potentially even we stopped. I want to yank them off a steroid. So the fact that you have to use steroids initially doesn't necessarily mean that the cat will always need steroid, although many of them do. But we can kind of play with the dose and gradually decrease it again to that lowest effective amount, whatever therapy we can do that keeps the cat stable weight and no symptoms with minimal side effects is what we want to try. Mm -hmm. Patients with serum cobalamin levels less than 200 nanograms per liter have been associated with poor prognosis in some cases. Hmm. Um, also, elevated PLI has been associated with a poor prognosis. And we didn't talk about PLI earlier. We talked about TLI, mm -hmm. um, but PLI is a pancreatitis test, basically, mm -hmm. an older type. So taking all of our diagnostic and treatment options into account, what would you do for a cat like Leo? What would I do? Okay. <laughs> what would Leo do? is a stable kitty who is eating and drinking. So the good news is the owners don't have to make an emergency decision about how aggressive to be. We've got a little bit of time to decide if we need it. In this particular case, I would tell the owners that I think it's GI disease like inflammatory bowel disease. Like we talked about before, diagnosis is tricky. And I'm going to recommend some trial therapeutics as well as some further testing. 
Since his main clinical sign is vomiting, I would start him on Serenia because Serenia won't impact any future test results. It's a very safe drug, and it might make the cat feel 100% better. Mm. And I'm going to recommend that we keep a log of how he's doing while the owners review some detailed information and consider their goals. I'd prefer to initiate a dietary trial right away. I personally like a novel protein diet. Other people like hypoallergenic or easily digestible. Okay, you know, whatever works for your patients, go ahead and do it, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, if the owner didn't want to do a dietary trial right away, that's okay, because it's a big commitment. The owner is basically like promising to feed the cat only that for a while. Sometimes that's hard, like especially people have kids or, you know, different things like that. Mm -hmm. If the owner allowed me to check a malabsorption profile, I'd want to get that pulled ASAP because I'm going to want to start B12 ASAP. And if I start B12 before I pull that, then it's not as helpful. So <laughs> if they said, no, uh, we can't do a malabsorption profile, I'd start the B12 anyway, because again, it's not harmful. But I would warn the owner that it would interfere with test results if we try to check the cobalamin later on. It won't interfere with any type of biopsy or anything like that. It would just interfere with the cobalamin level. And that might not be of any great consequence, honestly, mm-hmm. depending on <laughs> the owner's goals and things like that. I'd also want to do an ultrasound as soon as possible, but I'd be okay in this case with waiting to see how the pet responds to a dietary trial first. If he's not doing much better in two to four weeks, I would want to put the gas on the floor about the ultrasound. But there's nothing wrong with doing the ultrasound right away if the owner is on board for it. In fact, I think that would be the ideal situation. If the ultrasound results showed changes to the intestinal wall thickness or we saw enlarged lymph nodes or both, then I would recommend exploratory with biopsies ASAP. And I would want to get all areas of the GI tract and lymph nodes. Since he's stable, though, we have a lot of room to be flexible with this plan. But I would also warn the owner that an uncontrolled inflammatory bowel disease can change over time to a precancerous and then a cancerous condition. So we don't want to ignore the chronic GI signs. Uh, If the owner is like, well, we just want to be very conservative and we end up doing something like chronic intermittent serenia therapy for the cat, that's okay. It's probably not immediately harmful, but we need to make 100% sure that the owner understands this could progress to cancer at some point if we don't get more serious about treating it and they have to just be okay with that. So what if the owner doesn't want to do further testing and initial therapy like a dietary trial and B12 supplementation isn't working? Like at what point would you consider using an immunosuppressive therapy like prednisolone in a cat who is an IBD suspect but who hasn't had intestinal biopsies? Excellent question. And one that I run into like (laughs) every 99% (laughs) of the time I'm working up one of these cases. Mm -hmm. Owners at least where I live and that I have encountered in my 12, almost 13 years of practice now, they're very hesitant to do biopsies. They just are. People are afraid of anesthesia anyway. They're very afraid of abdominal surgery, you know, that sort of thing. That's a very personal decision. If we're going to talk about using prednisolone for empirical therapy for presumptive inflammatory bowel disease, We need to consider it super carefully, and we've got to counsel the owner extensively before we make that decision. The owners have to understand that by starting the prednisolone, we are removing our ability to get accurate biopsies later. So the steroid can interfere with biopsies 
and make it look like severe IBD is mild. It might make it look like cancer is not cancer. So if we, you know, are on prednisolone therapy and then all of a sudden the owner's like, I changed my mind, I want biopsies, well, it's going to be less helpful. Also, you can't really biopsy the intestines while a cat's on immunosuppressive doses of steroid because it suppresses healing. So then you would have to go through like, okay, now we're going to somehow taper and stop the steroid and be off of them for a certain period of time and then do a biopsy. It just makes it really a pain in the ass. So before we do steroid, the owner has to say to me, Grider, I am 1000% sure I don't want biopsies now and never will in the future. And I'm like, okay. And then I document it, document it, document it. I write it in the record. I talk to them on the phone. I send them written confirmation. Today, you have elected to do this, even though here is the possibility of what could happen. Okay. Because owners like to conveniently forget (laughs) that you talked about stuff. So just document it. But sometimes owners are adamant that pet is sick and we've got to, we just got to make the decision. So um, do it. It's fine. I've done it a lot. And many of the cats get better. Sometimes they get better and we're able to taper them down and the cat does fine for years. And we think this cat probably just has IBD. I can't prove it, but that's what it seems like. And sometimes I have cats get much better and then get worse again within about eight weeks or so. And those are the cats that I think probably have intestinal lymphoma and the steroid helped for a little bit, but now isn't helping anymore. But again, we can't prove it without biopsies. You just have to be cautious and careful, educate the owner. But at the end of the day, making the pet feel good is what we are here for. And so I wouldn't deny empirical prednisolone therapy to an IBD suspect cat if we don't have biopsies. I would offer it um, if the owners just don't want to go ahead or can't financially. So, Jen Jen, Yes. What happened with Leo's case? So Leo was started on a novel protein diet with rabbit as the protein source. His malabsorption, maldigestion profile showed a low cobalamin level, but no other abnormalities. He was started on vitamin B12 supplementation. His abdominal ultrasounds showed two enlarged mesenteric lymph nodes and increased intestinal wall thickness. So his owners elected to pursue an abdominal exploratory with full thickness biopsies of the intestinal tract. Yay, owners. Oh, awesome. He recovered well from his procedure. Histopathology showed that he had moderate lymphoplasmacytic enteritis consistent with IBD. He did not fully respond to the dietary trial with novel protein diet and vitamin B12 supplementation, so prednisolone therapy was initiated. After about six months, He was eventually successfully tapered down to an every-other-day prednisolone therapy combined with B12 supplementation and a novel protein diet and occasional at-home serenia for breakthrough vomiting. He did well for six years and eventually succumbed to a completely unrelated disease process at age 14. Oh, Leo did a good job with his IBD. He did. That's a long time. That's a successful story right Mm -hmm. there. I'm also so excited to hear that the owners went for full testing in this case. Mm-hmm. It's not often, is what I, no. like if I had to, in a non scientific way, just estimate the number of owners that decide to do biopsies, I would say it's probably less than 20% mm-hmm. that, off the top of my head that I can think of. But the ones that have elected to move forward with biopsies, honestly, though, knock on wood, I've never had anyone say to me, 
man, I really wish I didn't move forward with Bobsies. They've all been like, well, now we know what's going on and we're going to treat it. And Yay, Leo. So uh, this veterinarian was aggressive mm-hmm. with their recommendations and the owner accepted them and we got a diagnosis and we got six more good years of quality of life for Leo. So that's really a small price to pay, I think, for for that amount of time. Mm-hmm. That's really awesome. That's good quality of life and not, yeah. you know, without treatment, it would not be that. Well, that's our case for this week. <laughs> JJ. Yes. What's your favorite thing this week? I had sort of a, I don't want to call it a confrontation. It was just more of. Ooh, confrontation. It kind of was a confrontation, though, because um, I knew when this client called and made this request, we had already told the client that we would not be able to accommodate this request in the future without charging her for it okay um that seems reasonable yes and um i just made sure to go ahead and i spoke with office manager and i spoke with the technician that was going to be involved and i said okay here's what she's wanting here's my plan based on what we talked about before anything that i need to change they're like nope that's exactly what you need to do and as expected, she was not happy about the fact that she was going to have to pay for this service. I was proud of myself the way I handled it, because normally if somebody's being that combative or combative and um, I know it's not the word <laughs> I was trying to say, if they're being, you know, to that way, I have a tendency to like just shut down. I just explained in a nice way that, you know, your options are you can call me online pharmacy and handle it yourself. I'll be happy to provide you with their telephone number or we can handle it, but you'll be charged a, you know, price per hour technician fee to handle it. And she opted to handle it herself. There it is. (laughs) So you got the desired outcome, Mm -hmm. which was the owner handling the thing that they need to handle themselves by themselves. Yes. Like an adult person. Yeah. See? Uh-huh. Go ahead, JJ. Yes. That's, that's, that was my yeah, JJ moment of the week. Excellent. <laughs> so you you came together with management to solve a problem that was taking up a ridiculous amount of time mm-hmm. and probably was sucking the life out of the clinic and the morale out of the staff. Yes. And you fixed it. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's fantastic. I'm so proud of you, actually. I mean, I'm not being facetious. I'm serious. Like, too many clinics and veterinarians put up with this unreasonable bullshit. I mean, from owners. And this had been going on for over a year. Boundaries. (laughs) And nobody else really thought that it was inappropriate to... Lord. Well, I'm so glad that you got that handled. I just hope it's permanently handled. <laughs> it should be. Like, Hopefully. that should be the the last word. Well, this week I uh, started my fall planting with uh, snapdragons and pansies for fall. So beautiful. <laughs> and I also got a couple of ferns that are perennial, which means that they, you know, come back year after year. And But these are evergreens, so they actually never die back and so um, it's a new, a new type that I've never planted before, but I just like grabbed them and threw them out there. So we'll see how they could do. Are they out front? They are out front. Hmm. They are out front in um, a couple of pots. I made a little arrangement. It's got like a fern in the back, some snapdragons in the middle for a little height. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
pansies and violas in the front. The violas will trail a little bit usually when they get more mature. Yeah, I think it's going to be really pretty. Mm. So, so I got my hands in the dirt. Very good. Gardening is one of my favorite things. So, that's my favorite thing. Well, next week is our spooktacular Halloween episode. Excited. And it'll be snack episode number 13. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Perfect. So, sources that uh, we used for this episode include the Vencyclopedia of Diseases, chapter on feline inflammatory bowel disease, written by Carrie Rothrock and Linda Schell, and proceedings from the Atlantic Coast Veterinary Conference in 2013, from a talk, Inflammatory Bowel Disease, Part 2, Treatment Strategies, by Robert Schurdig. As usual, please send us your cases, your stories, your anything, really. we just like for you to share. Yeah, any animal-related item, honestly, we'll mm-hmm. probably enjoy reading it. Yep, absolutely. Send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Hashtag introvets. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.